0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Now, Brexit is back in a big way, so we talked a lot about that on the show today. We also had a lot of fun with political band names. Ariana Grande Coalition and Run DCMS being two of my favourites. We also did our regular quiz. And if you want to come on and do our quiz, can you get to number 10? Then get in touch with me. Email matt.chorley at times.radio. And if you can get at least one question right, then you can join our mid-morning cabinet, unlike a couple of our recent contestants who haven't even managed to do that. Anyway, back to today's episode of the podcast. And remember this. The British people have
2: voted to leave the European Union. I love this country and I feel honoured to have
3: served it. I have concluded that person cannot be me.
4: I am honoured and humbled to have been chosen. Brexit means Brexit. But if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere.
1: You're sick of hearing about Brexit. I'm sick of talking about Brexit.
4: We agreed that the government should call a general election. Nothing has changed.
1: Nothing has changed. Some of us might have tried to tell you Theresa May wasn't very good, but we don't like to talk about it. This is not what we expected. We've got a hung parliament. sufficient progress has now been made. Boris Johnson has quit the government, follows David Davis. What the hell is going on? I firmly believe that the draft withdrawal
4: agreement was the best that could be negotiated. Brexit is boy. Today marks the culmination of our exit negotiations with the EU. There will now be a vote of confidence in my leadership of the Conservative Party. I will contest that vote with everything
1: I've got. Welcome to the most extraordinary day in British politics since, well, the last extraordinary day in British politics. The Parliamentary Party does have confidence. On a night when something genuinely historic
2: has happened. The nose to the left 432. Tonight's vote is the greatest defeat for a government since the 1920s. The nose to the left 391. So the nose have it. The nose have it. I profoundly regret the decision that this house has
1: taken. Theresa May goes down to a humiliating defeat.
4: The nose to the left 344. Mr Speaker, I fear we are reaching the limits of this process in this house. Not for the first time. We're asking, what the hell is going on? Longer extension would oblige the United Kingdom to hold elections to the European Parliament.
1: This is the House of Commons. Situation, grim and worsening. Big win for the Brexit Party, that's very clear. Terrible night for the Conservative Party.
4: But with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. Boris Johnson is elected. Well, I look at you this morning and I ask myself, do you look daunted? This is not normal. The Prime Minister's advice to Her Majesty was unlawful.
1: This deal uh, represents uh, a very good deal. Happy Christmas election,
2: Britain. Tory gains almost everywhere. This election means that getting Brexit done is now the unarguable decision of the British people.
1: Blimey, O'Reilly. It makes you feel a bit sick just listening to all that back, doesn't it? Um, it seems a long time ago, if it does feel like a long time ago, where well, you're not alone. Where once we were all fluent in uh, Brexit, now we struggle to remember what all those strange words mean. So now, on Times Radio, it's time for this.
5: Parlez-vous Brexit?
1: Yes, it's a language lesson. A year ago, it all tripped off the tongue, but it's a language we've all got out of the habit of speaking. Can you separate your protocols from your backstops? We could all do with a refresher course to learn the lingo. So, in this half hour, we'll be joined by a panel of experts who are fluent in Brexit. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Oliver Wright, the Times Policy Editor, and, frankly, Mr Brexit. <laughs> morning, Ollie. How are you doing? Good morning. Now, you, you write the weekly uh, Brexit briefing email as well for The Times, which is a proper guide to what's really yeah, going that's on. that's the
2: geek guide to guide to Brexit.
1: Well, you can sign up to that at the times.co.uk if you're a subscriber. And if you're not, you can go to timescouk forward slash subscribe. So let's dive straight in. Basically, this is a language lesson. We've picked up some of the key phrases that we're going to be bombarded with a lot over the uh, next uh, few uh, days, weeks and months. Let's take a listen to the first one.
5: Withdrawal
6: agreement.
2: Withdrawal agreement, Ollie. Indeed. Indeed. We all knew what it was last year. We did know what it was, and we're having to learn what it means again quite quickly. Um, So the withdrawal agreement was the agreement that Boris Johnson signed with the European Union, um, really this time last year in the autumn. And it was the agreement which Theresa May tried to put to the House of Commons on three occasions and didn't get through on any occasion, and Boris Johnson made some minor tweaks, declared victory, and got it through with a stomping majority. Um... This has now come back into the news now. We all thought that that bit of it was done and dusted, but yesterday it emerged that the government was looking to tweak bits of the withdrawal agreement, or perhaps more accurately, exploit ambiguities in the withdrawal agreement in terms of what it said the UK had to do, specifically over the Northern Ireland border. Um, Different people have different interpretations of what the government's doing, but you see this morning that Jonathan Jones, who is head of the government's legal service, appears to have quit over differences with Downing Street over the way in which they are approaching this issue. Um, This might seem geekish, does it really? matter but it sort of does because one of the things about being a nation state is and signing treaties that you are seen to keep with your keep to your word and if the impression is that Boris Johnson is trying to somehow sneak out of the commitments that he made under the withdrawal agreement there are a lot of people who fear that you know that is not something that The UK should be doing. Okay, they may have made a mistake. Okay, it may have had unintended consequences which they didn't see at the time. But once you've signed something, you've got to agree to it. Um, It should be said that Downing Street um, completely disputes that interpretation. They're saying they are acting entirely within the withdrawal agreement. They are merely trying to make sure that there is legal certainty in Northern Ireland in case a trade agreement doesn't happen or in case there are disputes. And they're saying we have no intention of walking away from the withdrawal agreement. And to A certain extent, they are right within that because what they're not doing is saying we are going to disregard something in the withdrawal agreement. And if the EU have a problem with what the UK is doing, they can always take it to the dispute resolution function within it. But, that, but
1: that's not a great start to our brand new relationship with the EU. It is. Just, just in a sort of idiot's guide for 30 seconds, <laughs> explain what was
2: in the withdrawal agreement. What was it that Boris Johnson had signed up to? So Boris Johnson signed up to what was a pretty unique um, relationship for Northern Ireland, where while Britain, England, Wales and Scotland left the customs union and single market. Um, Northern Ireland effectively remained within the European Union's customs union and within the single market. Effectively, that means checks on goods crossing the Irish Sea. How big those checks are is the matter for dispute, and that's where the, the row came yesterday. Okay, so this is what we call the...
4: Northern Ireland Protocol. Northern Ireland Protocol.
1: People keep using this. Northern Ireland <laughs> Protocol. Explain what on earth that means.
2: Wow. Um, this is a. <laughs> um,. The Northern Ireland Protocol was the part, it's better known as the backstop, effectively. The backstop and the Northern Ireland Protocol are one and the same. And this was designed to ensure that there wasn't a hard border in Northern Ireland, i.e. customs checks on vehicles crossing between the north and south of Ireland. All sides agreed they didn't want these checks. Both sides couldn't agree on how to avoid these checks. So the Northern Ireland Protocol, which actually has been hanging around for quite a long time. The protocol that we've got is much the same protocol as the EU suggested to Theresa May, that she could never sign up to. Boris Johnson said he could never well, sign course, up to Of course, because
1: she it. famously said no British Prime Minister would
2: sign up to this. Yeah, and no, no British Prime Minister would put a border in the Irish Sea, and lo and behold, Boris Johnson put a border in the Irish Sea. Now, it is really important politically for Boris Johnson for there to be as few checks as possible. The last thing he wants to happen is, on the 1st of January, goods to get disrupted on their way to Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland firms saying, we can't cope, we're about to go bust. That is politically toxic to the Prime Minister. Which brings us helpfully on to the next phrase we hear a lot about.
4: Frictionless access and customs checks. Frictionless access and customs checks.
1: Yes, but Parlez-vous Brexit... People talk about friction. Most people don't know what custom checks are. Never mind no. how you make them frictionless. So Explain what this means. <laughs> if I've got something in a box uh, and it's going to go to Northern Ireland, what are we talking about? I can't. I'm t- sending my cardboard box to, to Northern <laughs> or Ireland. Or your sheep,
2: perhaps, more actually. Or
1: my sheep. Your not, sheep, not in a box, specifically. Not in a box. No. Okay. So I've got so some sheep, and I want, <laughs> I want to sell them to someone in Northern Ireland. I mean,
2: Ireland. the dispiriting thing is, I remember having a conversation with a customs expert um, shortly before. COVID limited these types of conversations at a conference. And even he couldn't explain exactly what these customs arrangements were, what they meant. And the truth is, there are a vast array of different rules for different types of goods. Now, yeah, we have customs checks on goods that we import from Singapore or goods that we export to Singapore. And that actually is is pretty, pretty, pretty seamless. The real problem that you have is a whole bunch of firms just export to the European Union and they have no experience of the types of paperwork, which, once you've set it up, actually, work quite well. But it's got to start from a standing, a standing start. And the thing that really worries ministers is that they can do as much as they like to get their side of things prepared for these new custom checks that will come in, which will effectively treat the EU like the rest of the world. But what they can't do is make sure businesses prepare. There are too many businesses. They don't have the time. And the worry is that, effectively, if you do not get a trade deal by the end of this year, and, in fact, even if you do get a trade deal, you could still have total chaos at the Dover Calais um, crossing where 10,000 lorries go every day, um, because a small proportion of those don't have the right paperwork. They are either stopped at Dover or they make it to Calais and they're turned back from Calais. That then disrupts the sort of you know, fairly mechanicalised flow of goods across the Channel, and the goods that really need to get through don't. And then you see situations like, for example, you know, at the beginning of this year with shortages of, of, of supplies due to covid how does the public react if there are stories about fresh fruit and vegetables not coming across from Spain? Because remember, we'll be leaving in January, uh, exactly the point at which, you know, we import most of our fresh fruit and vegetables. Do they start sort of stocking up on tomatoes, emptying the shelves, which is a very visible reminder of a potential no-deal Brexit?
1: And not least, we saw earlier this year, you only need one picture of uh, oh, a indeed. shortage of loo rolls and suddenly yeah. the whole country loses and, its mind. Yeah, and
2: there doesn't need to be a shortage of loo rolls or tomatoes or cucumbers for that to happen. Yeah. And there's a huge, you know, That's the thing that is keeping Michael Gove up at night.
1: If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday 10 till 1.
4: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: We'll have more on the episode after this.
0: So, Let's bring another expert
1: now, Professor Catherine Barnard, a professor of EU law at Trinity College, Cambridge, and a senior fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe Research Organisation. Morning, Catherine. Hello there. Uh, So we've got you on to to, uh, try and explain this phrase.
4: State aid. State
1: aid. State aid. We keep hearing a lot about this. Explain what it is and why it's back in the news, Catherine.
6: Right. State aid, really important. It's where money is given by a public authority. So the state to um, companies or to a particular region. And the concern is it distorts competition. So if you get money and I don't, that's not fair. And I complain about it. And I say that's state aid.
1: Okay, And so why is it being thrown into the the mix this time round?
6: So this is the glorious problem of the Northern Ireland Protocol again. So um, <laughs> so people have be been keeping just, notes, <laughs> yeah, notes just, this morning. This is okay. how it all
1: joins
2: up.
6: Hang, hang on to your hats. So um, Northern Ireland Protocol says that uh, EU rules on state aids will carry on applying to any UK rule, note any UK rule, which has an effect in Northern Ireland. And um, the UK government doesn't like that at all. They said, well, we've voted Brexit and Brexit means Brexit, which means that we should not um, be bound by EU state aid rules. The EU says, well, you signed up to it. It's in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Specifically, it's in Article 10 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that's one of the things that allegedly the government wants to tweak or probably more realistically override um, in the draft bill that's going to be published tomorrow.
1: And, Ollie, the reason that this has become a a political issue is particularly uh, attributed to Dominic Cummings, the idea of the government using taxpayers' money to... Either prop up or bolster a particular industry, possibly tech industries. Yeah. It, but there's a big debate in the Tory Party, isn't there? Because you know we always used to think the Tory Party were against state aid. It was yeah. supposed to be let the let
2: the let capitalism flourish. Dominic Cummings is not a conservative, um, and arguably in parts of his policy, neither is Boris Johnson. Um, They are very keen on this levelling up agenda. And I think the one thing that COVID has taught them is, you know, there's been huge state intervention over COVID and that's been approved by the European Union. But as we begin to rebuild the country, I think the government does not want to deprive themselves of the tools of supporting specific sectors of the economy. And more importantly, the sectors of the economy that are likely to grow in the future. And they want to keep the option open. It's not quite the same thing as saying they're going to do it, but they certainly don't want to be told by Brussels that they can't. Okay, Catherine. You're,
1: re- oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you're, yeah, as an expert in EU law, what happens if Britain either breaks these rules on state ed or the all the other things? You know, goes tries to go back on the agreements in in the withdrawal agreement. What could actually happen? Is it get a day yes. in court, yeah, or what happens?
6: So it's it's pretty serious to um, break um, international rules and it's particularly serious to break the withdrawal agreement for the simple reason that uh, the EU can bring proceedings against the UK. Um, using the dispute resolution provisions in the withdrawal agreement. What that means is you start with consultations. If that doesn't work, um, it goes to arbitration. And if that arbitration panel thinks it raises issues of EU law, which because state aid is basically an EU concept, it probably would, it goes off to the European Court of Justice. And then the European Court of Justice gives a ruling, and comes back to the arbitration panel. And what ultimately that can lead to is um, a penalty payment could be levied against the UK, or ultimately um, suspension of part of the withdrawal agreement.
1: Blimey, I'm sure Tory MPs will be thrilled to see Britain uh, I the thought European like courts of Justice. <laughs> 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 Thanks so much, uh, Professor Catherine Barnard there, uh, for the, uh, a professor of EU law at Trinity College Cambridge. She's also a senior fellow at the UK in changing Europe. Now, uh, we've heard uh, an awful lot uh, recently about, well, about this.
4: No deal is a good outcome. No deal is a good outcome.
1: Yeah, Boris Johnson saying no deal is a good outcome, which is not far off. No deal's better than a bad deal. So what's the politics of all this? Um, Are we really, uh, is it just history repeating itself, or are we really more likely to be heading for no deal? Uh, Raoul Rupert was a Brexit advisor to Theresa May. Uh, Morning.
3: Good
1: morning. Are you getting deja vu watching all this play out this time round?
3: Yeah, there certainly are elements of deja vu. A lot of the rhetoric on both sides is similar. But I think the important point is the context is very different. You know, last time around, we had a parliament that wasn't willing to countenance no deal. And so there was very unlikely to be no deal. You had lots of people in the cabinet uh, and within government who wouldn't have supported no deal. And you also had on the EU side, EU leaders who are much more engaged and much more invested in there being a deal. This time around, we have a very large majority in Parliament, which I think enables Boris Johnson to push through no deal if he wanted. Um, very few people in the cabinet who would question that, I think. Uh, and we also see on the EU side, EU leaders are far more distracted by the Covid crisis and have not been as engaged in the talks and have, at the moment showing no signs of directly um, intervening to try and uh, move things along. So the context, I think, is very different. And therefore, the chances of no deal this time around are, are much higher.
1: If you were in Downing Street right now yeah. doing your old job, what would you be advising the Prime Minister to do?
3: Well, I would be saying that there is a potential landing zone on this issue of state aid. Um, you know, I think the EU is showing signs that it is willing to move. I think their opening position of aligning with the EU state aid rules was obviously unacceptable. But I think there is a potential landing zone if the UK is willing to set out um, a willingness to have some kind of dispute resolution regime over state aid and possibly an independent agency overseeing state aid in the UK. Um, But it's still a UK agency. And I think the important point is, in practical terms, this can be drafted and negotiated in a way that doesn't actually fetter state aid uh, much we see that the current EU rules actually provide quite a lot of flexibility. For example, if you look at the state aid given out during the coronavirus um, crisis. And so I think in reality, the constraints that this sort of middle way would impose would be very limited. And therefore, the UK government would still be able to do what it wants on state aid, but, but get uh, a deal over the line. So that would be where I would be aiming.
1: Um, while I've got you as well, I need, we just need to talk quickly about fish. Uh, why are fish such a problem?
3: Well, I think it's it's somewhat politically totemic on on both sides. There are uh, certain local communities on both sides that that are really dependent on access to to waters or access to different markets. Um, I think we also have uh, very effective lobbies on both sides, to be frank, that have continuously throughout this made um, fish an important issue. And it's also something that historically has been identified with Brexit because there has been a, a long term sort of animosity towards the common fisheries policy and its impact on the UK fishing industry. So it's been a long running uh, sore. So I think it, it, it does always play an outsized political role compared to its economic um, role. In the end, though, I think if there were a deal on state aid, a deal on fisheries would follow.
1: Really good to speak to Ralph well, Whipplewell, their former Brexit advisor to Theresa May. But well, that's how sort of things look from our side. What about the other side?
4: The European Union's position. The European Union's position.
1: Yeah, if you thought it was hard to try and work out what's going on uh, on this side of the channel, let's try to work out what's going on on the other side. I've been speaking to Stephanie Bolson, London correspondent for De
5: Generally, I think the mood in Europe is a bit similar to the mood in, in the United Kingdom, that people are just tired of Brexit and they want it to be over. Saying that, I think what happened yesterday, um, going back to the report by the Financial Times, that there will be a draft legislation that is actually partly undermining the withdrawal agreement, that has gone down like, quite like a rocket on the continent. Um, I've been looking through the European media this morning and uh, especially the German media, obviously. And um, there are a lot of very negative headlines simply because it feels like, okay, we know Boris Johnson. He is um, he's quite an impulsive character and he's a, he's a gambler. He did that last year. But this is another quality and not a few people perceive this as a provocation.
1: And how concerned is Europe about the idea of it all being sort of blown up again then? That, 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 like you said, everyone wanted to sort of get Brexit done, to use that old phrase. Uh, and the idea that, you know, unpicking the withdrawal agreement from uh, last year and going back to the beginning. How, how, how concerned is Europe about the impact of, that might have on the talks? If that is now a
5: serious uh, draft legislation, this is a big difference to words and comments and flippant comments especially, um, like you saw them last year and again like kind of Europe is uh, used to coming from, from Downing Street. Um, I, I do think that if there is a really serious attempt to take back parts of what the British government has signed uh, up to in, in in October last year, that will um, definitely make the negotiations difficult, and it will have a negative impact on on an outcome. And I could imagine that um, it will make a deal impossible.
1: And in terms of sort of Europeans' views of uh, of Britain, are we still seen as friends and allies, or or, or that we've already sort of? And obviously, you know, much of your, you know, the whole of Europe has been consumed by coronavirus, probably thought about other things other than Britain and Brexit. But how are we seen right now? Are we sort of friendly neighbours or are we drifting further away from the EU?
5: I think that um, the perception is the feeling, in, in as, at least as I can, I can obviously um, only speak for Germany. The feeling is that Britain is very much drifting away—not Britain as a country, but the British government and Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, who is now quite a known figure in, in Germany. Um, there is a lot of well uh, astonishment um, because people see in in Germany, they look at the COVID situation in. Britain, which unfortunately is much worse than in Germany and much worse than in other places in Europe, they know that unfortunately the country here has um, the highest number of people who died uh, with COVID-19 and that also Britain will be hardest hit economically by the pandemic. And therefore, there is a kind of um, bemusement why in this situation, the British government, on top of all that, um, puts the economy and especially the business, the international, the trading business sector at even more risk by um, risking a no-deal outcome. I'm perfectly aware that even if there's a deal, there will still be disruption and frictions on the border and so on and so forth. But the meaning of trading on WTO tariffs from the 1st of January 2021 will definitely rocket up the prices in the supermarkets, for example, for lamb, for meat, for fruit, everything that British people eat every day. So um, it's difficult to understand why the government chooses to go down that road.
1: And just finally, then, as it always feels like history repeating itself a bit, crunch talks, threats to walk away, no deal preparations being stepped up. At some point, someone will start saying that all all hope pins on Angela Merkel coming to the rescue of the UK. It happened with David Cameron. It happened with Theresa May. Is she in the mood to come to the rescue of Boris Johnson? What does does she make of, of the UK prime minister?
5: As you said, it happened with uh, David Cameron, it happened with uh, Theresa May, and it won't happen again <laughs> with Boris Johnson. I think last year there was a different in 2019 because it was about the withdrawal agreement, and that was something that um, actually I know from Berlin they had quite a lot of confidence in Boris Johnson because they knew if there's one politician in the UK that can get the withdrawal agreement through Parliament, it's Boris Johnson. So there was a, a kind of acceptance that, um, well, you have to... Maybe bear up uh, the the rhetoric and the polemic coming out of Downing Street, but at the end there will be a deal. This time it's different. This time it's about protecting the European single market, and Angela Merkel is 100% um, together and unified with the other um, 26 leaders, and she will not do any compromises just because Germany, which I really think is uh, uh, Britain's best friend on the continent.
1: That was Stephanie Bolson, London correspondent for Devault. Uh, told to me. I've still got Ollie Wright, uh, the policy editor for the Times, in the show. So, Ollie, the, the the million dollar question that everyone <laughs> wants to know is, will there be a deal?
2: Wow. <laughs> I think there is more likely to be a deal than not, despite everything that's coming out of Downing Street saying that the chances of a deal are less than thirty percent. I would, if I was guessing, and it, it's a wild guess, I would say it's a sixty forty percent chance of a deal. I think. We've been here before, both sides are, it is in the interest of both sides to ramp up the rhetoric, the fear of no deal, but it is fundamentally in the interest of both sides to get a deal and, like Raoul said, I can see a landing zone if both sides want to take it. That isn't to say that there isn't quite a big risk of a sort of accidental no deal of things going wrong, so... Yeah, 60-40. I'm on the glass half-full side. Well, that's better. Um, uh, Bruno Waterfield, our correspondent in Brussels, said
1: 50-50 yesterday, so you're 60 <laughs> I might go 70-30. Se- <laughs> it feels like it's all history of people. And crucially, you, you know, because we, we, we officially left in January. This is all about the end of the transition period. And our...
2: We did. What about those poor people who thought the whole thing was over in January? They must be getting a really rude awakening <laughs> well, just at the least, Not
1: least when it was Boris Johnson himself who told us that... Um, it, it was oven an uh, <laughs> oven oven-ready
2: deal. ready deal.
1: Get Brexit done. And he said we'd be able to stop talking about Brexit. Yeah. yeah, That's a, unusually a rare election pro- promise uh, broken there. Uh, really good to see you. Ollie Wright, the policy editor from The Times. You can read more on his analysis and uh, reporting on what's going on at the Times.co.uk. Uh, make sure you subscribe. Times.radio forward slash subscribe.